you know, there was a tribal ferocity that I really identified with. And I, and I really tuned into that as a teenager and I've never lost that. I've sort of carried that with me. I carry it with me every time I step on stage. I feel like you need to have that. Otherwise you're really vulnerable, you know, particularly as lead singer, you know, you're out front and you can at times be in front of literally thousands of people. And if you don't carry that sort of like awareness of your own power, you're lost. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Curious creatures, and uh, I, I'm, this, it, I'm I'm really excited. I am actually very excited, um, and it, I'm I'm tickled pink to introduce our guest this evening. It's uh, Shirley Manson. Shirley, welcome to Curious Creatures. Thank you for having me, Curious Creatures. I am absolutely over the moon to be here. Do you feel like a curious creature sometimes? I used to think of myself as a curious creature and now I realize that actually I'm probably about as normal as a blade of grass oh. and <laughs> the more the more I accept that the more uh comfortable I feel like I'm curious but not in any in any major way if that makes any sense I'm curious about other people I don't think I'm particularly curious <laughs> I don't even know if that makes sense. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Do you remember? We, 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 we ha I, I've met you. Of course I remember. You don't understand. <laughs> You're like one of my all-time favorites. I mean, I don't know why you think I would forget this kind of stuff. <laughs> you, think, you must think I'm bullshitting you, but I feel like I've proven my love to you over and over again. I have literally talked about you in practically every interview I've ever done. You're the drummer of my favorite all-time band. Oh, my God. And, yeah, you're a big deal in my world. Yeah, he's my fa favorite drummer, too, by the way. He's my favorite drummer. I, lol. Lol. <laughs> you taught me everything. I just, I'm just, I want you to go red. <laughs> I can feel his discomfort, though. It's cute. I can feel the heat. I've opened the window. I'm in the attic up here, and I've opened the window because it's a little bit hot up here now. <laughs> you can just say thank you, Shirley. Correct me if I'm wrong. It might have been garbage. First show in the UK, yeah? London's Kentish Town Town and Country Club, I think it was called. I can't remember if it was our first show in the UK, but it was definitely our first ever London show. Yeah, wow. And I, I, and I nearly fainted when somebody said that you were there. I, I nearly fainted. Was... I was in the middle of the dance floor with Billy Chainsaw. <laughs> you know Billy. Uh, Billy. Uh... Me and Billy Chainsaw. Chainsaw's going, because that's what he said every time he loved stuff. And we were like dancing away and then we dig came to an end. And, and then you came walking up sort of from stage direction in the middle of the crowd because you, your family was there, I think, or some members of the family. That's all I remember. I'm sure, probably, yeah. And I, and I said, that was fucking great. You went, it was amazing. And you went like... Are you who I think you are? Yeah, I remember, I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't really speak. I couldn't really say anything sensible, though, because I was so overwhelmed with meeting you. I was trying to be cool. 
Oh, I, I, I can re reciprocate because um, Susie and I were on a Jonathan Ross live telephone link up to New York where David Bowie, Bowie was on the other end. Wow. And Bowie being incredibly professional and, and all, all uh, embracing, you know, so Jonathan's doing his Jonathan bit and hi, Susie, and she's talking, hi, Budgie, and I went, hi, David. But that's all I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time ago, right? This is we're going back a little bit. Nearly thirty years. Wow. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I never thought I'd still be here. After I met you, Shirley, the next thing I remember was going to the bar and which one of your guitarists? I was one of them. It's Duke, I think. Yeah, Duke. I'll be Duke because Steve is so shy. There's no way he could have handled speaking to you. <laughs> and, and it was it was Duke, and and I went up and said, "Like that was really great." And he said something like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> <laughs> That's his sense of humor. Uh, uh, it was more like, "Who are you?" And I was going like, oh "My God, I'm sorry." I was inside. I, I sort of kind of crumbled a bit. I went, oh, "Was that really? Oh God, oh dear, how how uncool." So I've never let him forget that. But I, of course, I've never ever met him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would die of embarrassment if he knew you were telling me this story right now because he's actually a very humble person and he that he's got a like crazy sense of humor and he was being self-depreciating, I know, right. but I can see why it would yes. come across as complete awful arrogance. But. No, no, no. I got I got all all possible sides of that little quip. It was just so all, all good because it's stuck in my mind forever. <laughs> It amuses me to think that we could possibly, anyone in my orbit could possibly make me feel uncomfortable. Budgie's like our goodwill ambassador. <laughs> every, every, everybody loves him. Yeah, he has a very good reputation, which is not, you know, necessarily, doesn't necessarily always go with the territory. Of being a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He's just getting more and more uncomfortable as the conversation goes on. But it's true. You have a very good reputation and not everyone can claim to that. For, for all you listening in black and white, <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning a, a sort of strange maroon color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're always um, like Budgie in Berlin, me in Los Angeles. Where, where are you, Shirley? I'm in Los Angeles as well. Oh, okay. Okay. Good, good, good. Yeah. So you're in Los Angeles right now? Yeah, I've, I've been here for like 25 years. Incredible. Well, in that chair? In that very chair. <laughs> in the same bloody chair for 25 years, yeah. No, I, I'm, I ran away. Both me and Budgie ran away to, to you know, like join the circus, sort of. But how, how come you ended up finally in L.A.? That's a good question. I mean, I was in the Midwest for a while working with my band and then we took a hiatus because we weren't getting along very well. So we sort of took some time apart and it was either stay in Madison, Wisconsin, go to New York. I couldn't afford New York. So I ended up coming to Los Angeles because that's where Booch, the drummer in my band, lived. Right. And it just sort of made sense to sort of stick close to you know, the future rather than just disappear, you know? It's lovely the way you say booch. Booch. Because where I come from, we'd say butch. Butch, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I guess English people say butch. Americans... Butch, yeah. Yeah, say butch. Butch. And Scottish people say booch. Booch. Booch, yeah. Okay, from now on it's booch. Whenever we talk about him, we'll say booch. Booch. Okay, sounds good. I like hearing you say it like that. <laughs> 
So, you know, when you got here and you thought, okay, it's like the future for you, has that stayed with you? Or have you decided maybe somewhere else is the future or you're just like, you're going to be here? I think my future has changed since COVID. Like COVID, I found being here in Los Angeles during COVID really hard. Like I I went mad, actually. I sort of ended up one night waking up and the house was shaking Hmm. um, because of an earthquake. And it was, I was just at the end of my tether and I shouted out, I want to go home. (laughs) And I just, I I just found, I felt like Americans went a wee bit crazy. Yeah, totally. You know, one way or another, wherever you stood on COVID and how you wanted to approach the challenge, I felt like everyone was really extreme and cruel to one another and disrespectful and hysterical and I just was like I need I need to go home and then I went back to Scotland when they dropped the you know the embargo on travel embargo and right everybody was kind of chill you know like yeah people were were polite to one another and tried to be respectful but they weren't fighting I mean I saw people old ladies fight each other in the supermarket over a joint of meat right I was like this is madness you know, so. Yeah, no, it was it was it was kind of crazy here for a while. You're right. I mean, it was it it was kind of mean spirited. The thing I noticed the most was I'd be driving around, and you know, you you got to go on the freeways, right? So go on the freeways, and people are doing about 130 down the freeway. People just lose their mind, like in the middle of the day, and, and suddenly just start. I think, what's this motherfucker coming up behind me? He's going to kill me. <laughs> you know? It's true. It's it's nuts. I presume when you came over for that those first shows in England all those years ago, had you been in the States? Had you been in Wisconsin or something, getting everything ready? I'd been there for about a year, I think. And of course, back then, so we're talking almost 20, or 25 years or more, Madison, Wisconsin was a college town and little else. There was nothing really else there. And I'd come from Edinburgh, which is a really a cultural city. I'm sure you've both played there. And... Uh, I was a wee bit, it was a culture shock. I didn't drive and I had no money. So I was sort of miserable because I couldn't go anywhere. You know, America without a car is hell. I remember that's why I learned to drive so I could escape everybody. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I, I didn't drive until until I got here. You know, I was looking out the window. I, I got to know all the Russian taxi drivers as they were. This was like pre-Uber. Amazing. And I got to know all the Russian taxi drivers. And then I, I saw this old lady driving out of the window with this like huge Cadillac. She could barely stare over the top, and I thought, if she can do it, so can I. So I, I, I learned to drive here in California. How old were you? Because I was 40 when I learned to drive. Whoa. I think I wanted to learn to drive before I turned 30, and I just managed it, I think. Yeah, I didn't make that one. I was, I was like 33 or something. You know, yeah. Because, because we were always driven everywhere, back of a van or somewhere trundling around the M1. It's so true. When I wasn't driven somewhere, it was probably a good idea that I wasn't driving either. Well, there was that side of it as well. It wasn't safe. I love driving, though. You do? Where'd you go? I just love the feeling of driving. 
because I came to it late and I just love it. I'll drive anywhere. Anthony Hopkins apparently loves getting in the car and driving out into the desert. I was just going to say that that's like my favourite thing because you know, no desert in Europe, right? Where are we going to go in Europe driving around the desert? So, Well, you'd hit somebody, wouldn't you? You'd, have to, you'd, you'd bump into somebody somewhere. Absolutely. So I, I love driving out in the desert and seeing nobody and nothing you know, for hours on end. It's great. Where'd you go, Shelley? Where'd you, where'd, you, where'd you head? I don't care. I just like the act of driving. I like the feeling of it. And <laughs> I love like getting into behind the wheel and closing the doors and you hear the sort of sunk sound suction, you know, and you're all by yourself. There's no interference. And you can shout at all the, the other drivers. To... <laughs> Does your car have a good American kind of thud? It's a Prius. So it's like as basic as it gets, you know, but it's, it's my car and I love her. But when I first learned to drive, I bought myself a Lexus and then it got totaled. My husband totaled it on the, on the freeway. At this point, I was like, I need to get myself an electric car anyway. So I got myself a Prius and I, I really love it. But it doesn't quite have the feelings that that first Lexus had for me. Celavi. <laughs> you get any road rage though you know i'm very zen behind the wheel most of the time you know i i call i call people names while i you know if they cut me off i call them motherfuckers and stuff (laughs) i don't i don't flip them off anymore because one time i was coming down and somebody did something like that and then they they pulled over in this van and stopped and i pulled up right behind them i was ready to get out and remonstrate with them and then they put up like their hoods, two of them in the car, and I thought, oh, yeah. no fucking way am I staying. i got to go now. Goodbye. So now I just wave at people if they honk at me. You know? Yeah. It's funny because, you know, I'm quite a t- tempestuous character. And I, at very early days of driving, I would, of course, be flipping everybody off. Because you know what we're like in Britain, right? We're like yeah. flipping everybody off. Right? That was the victory sign you just threw there, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. But then my husband said to me, you do understand that you're in a country where people can get a, a gun at a local like grocery store if they wanted to. If I were you, I would like knock that off. And so now I kind of a much more zen behind the wheel than I am in any other point in my life. <laughs> Try and control myself because I don't want to get killed. So does that make you more tempestuous in other areas of your life? I don't know. I used to be really tempestuous. I don't know if I'm very tempestuous anymore. I have my moments, <laughs> but I need that. I mean, you know, as performers, you need a bit of that, right? You do need it. It's You have to have that fuel. Oh, yeah, sure. You have to have that. Um, but yeah... I don't lose my rag very much anymore. No, it, it becomes, you know, I, I noticed for, for me, you know, the, old, the older I get, it, it's less likely I remember to be able to do anything about it if some push came to shove. <laughs> it's kind of stupid, you know. It's like, do I really want to be stupid, you know? I'm good at being stupid, though. Well, yeah, sometimes it's good to be stupid. Shelley, when when you're performing, do you that, that that if you like that anger that you mentioned is did it help your performance? Did it help you get on stage? Is that was was that part of the deal? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's funny because to go back to you and embarrassing you when I was really young and I fell in love with the Banshees. Well, I was being bullied at school, and I would go back home and I would listen to your records, and it would empower me. You know, I'd feel like fierce and unassailable and I identified with the power that was in 
your music. I mean, a lot of that comes from the drums, yeah? I mean, obviously, right. all the other, like, incredible guitars and Susie's voice and so on and so forth yeah. and the whole collective. But, you know, there was a tribal ferocity that I really identified with and I and I really tuned into that as a teenager and I've never lost that. Oh I've sort of carried that with me. I carry it with me every time I step on stage. I feel like you need to have that. Otherwise, you're really vulnerable, you know, particularly as lead singer. You know, you're out front and you can at times be in front of literally thousands of people. And if you don't carry that sort of like awareness of your own power, you're lost. So, you know, you're partly to blame for my tempestuous budget. <laughs> I feel good about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because when Susie and I split, that which is like momentous you know just the world stopped and i i think it's even in like you know those papers you have to write and what's going to happen next and it, it was in my if like almost like that kind of legal desertion that i was going to go to los angeles because it's the only place i knew i could probably meet somebody who knew me <laughs> that's what i thought and so la was a kind of uh, first port first thought into my head it probably also you know that the whole circumstances of that split which is this is this is kind of getting into a bit of a reveal here but um here we go it's just that you know we were on a long tour and we'd been touring many many times and on that last venture out it was actually as the creatures rather than the banshees and um things hadn't been good before but something happened on that tour where i i, I suddenly got a wake-up call a wake-up call to me and it was nothing to do with us or nothing to do with anything else except it just it woke me up for the f and, and i thought where have i been and it was the hardest thing to hear inside and i thought la i thought it was about la at first you know and i thought well i've got to get back there because it must have been that person or that club or that situation and of course it was me and that's just coincidentally where it all happened because that's usually when you were fatigued tired out vulnerable all the rest of those things and there are many other people maybe similar in LA you know it's one of those places where people go when they're kind of burnt out or looking for something you know Lawson, yeah that's me that's me that's me 100 percent. yeah I mean that's the thing that we've found like now we're elder statesmen or whatever you want to call us you know we're we're like our lives we've followed such similar paths you know and so we have a lot in common we're like you know the, those uh, what was that last of summer wine yeah with those three old guys sitting the things you know we oh. we sit there and tell tell stories but we know we know all the references you know so it's kind of funny the last of the summer wine right oh my god cleggy cleggy who, who would be cleggy and who and who would be the guy with the flat cap oh my god who would fancy the lady down the street who used to roll her stockings down you know not a batty no oh not a batty oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you too that's amazing you, lol you, your your like childhood friends you went from you know Hawley and crawley all those sort of creepy holly crawly places gatwick just think gatwick airport but then it all stopped right like it stopped for me in 2004 bang yes you know partly from my own doing but same for you right you just stopped yeah abruptly and your band carried on. Mine stopped in its tracks, and then 
something else popped up. You know, the creatures took on another 10 years of life, and that was kind of crazy. But Shirley, you also mentioned that you you got to a point where you had to take time out. And are we talking similar things here? Or? Well, I don't know. I just think it's very hard for us as human beings to stay in relationships for a long time, you know. Yeah. And I think we all just realized if we didn't take a break from one another, we would leave each other. Yeah. I think it was that obvious. It was just it was just really unpleasant and not fun and just a vibe crush. So we decided to at least take a break. I think we were all really smart enough to know, like, we have to walk away from this right now. And as a result, no damage was done. No words were ever spoken that were hurtful, that you could never recover from. Like, nobody was cruel to one another. Wow. We just all recognized the fatigue that exists between human beings when you've been crammed together for a long time. How long had you been together at that point? Um, that's a good question. Well, since 1993, and I think we took the break in 2005 five or 2006 so for a while like a decade or more and you know the industry was really hard for us to negotiate at that point and our record label was making us crazy and we all were all blaming each other for the perceived failure you know you know how it goes when things start getting rough yeah you blame each other and yeah. and you're frustrated with one another and stuff that used to be quite cute becomes a real annoyance you know <laughs> yes and so <laughs> so we took a break and then we then we saw what life was like without one another, and it wasn't that that much fun either. So right. time went on, and then eventually we were like, let's let's get back together again and just have fun and forget the business, not worry about selling records, not worry about chart performance. Let's just play, and that was the the way that we we walked back home. You know, it just we stopped caring about what other people thought about us, and that and that has been a very successful sort of approach I mean I know definitely with the cure with my own experience we started so young I mean we were like you know by the time I was 19 I was on the road forever and we didn't have the tools to know how to deal with each other you know we were with each other 24 7 for first four albums, just album tour, album tour, album tour. You know, of course everything went crazy. You know, if we'd been a little older or had a little more uh, understanding of it, of it, you know, things would have maybe turned out differently. But you, you can't second guess that. You know, we're all too young, really, to know how to deal with it properly. But it sounds like what you guys did was the best idea. Yeah. No, but the guys are a little older. And that's what I think both Lol and I experienced. We realized how... We had little experience outside of what we'd created. Yeah, nothing. You know, we never had time off, never took time off. No, you were crazy full on, both of you, for a long time. Yeah. When John got ill and it was just, well, how are we going to carry on? You know, John's going to have to have a rest, you know, and yeah. it was like he was, you know, seriously ill. Um, but we we may have known it. I was too young, naive, green or, or you know, and I realized that to to acknowledge it in somebody else, I would have to have a good look at myself as well. And I wasn't equipped to do that for sure. I was too young and didn't know enough. And yeah. we had nobody old enough outside of us either to have an overview, stand back from this and go, I think you guys maybe need to take a year out, you know. Yeah, yeah, that would have saved everything. And nobody ever tells you at that stage because all they want 
to do is keep the machinery going. Keep making the money. Exactly. It's all money. Yeah. If you stop, everything goes away. Yeah. No, we were lucky that we were, I mean, we were quite old at this point. I mean, I think I was in my 40s, smart enough to know, like, we're going to kill this if we don't stop it right now. And we made the decision and we didn't involve anybody else. We didn't let our record company know or anything. We just, we just stopped. And that was one of the few advantages of being old in the music industry. <laughs> Did you find that, uh, Shirley, when you got back together, was it just like something beneficial had happened? Is- yeah, it was just a pleasurable experience, you know, to remove all expectations, not just of outsiders, but of ourselves. You know, I think, I think you can second guess yourself as an artist over and over and over again. And it becomes very, I think that's why as artists get older, they can become more and more conservative. You know, they, they start out this like these incredible bright lights and then by the end of their careers, they're scared to take a chance, scared to do something against the grain of what they're known for, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that was a, something that I noticed that for us really helped was just we stopped giving a shit. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying anything, but my, my previous partners, it's been almost 14 years since an album's come out and there's a reason for that, I think. You know, it's like the point, you get stuck. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I saw them play a couple of years ago. They were spectacular still. No, a great live band, absolutely. But who knows why they haven't haven't taken that leap. I mean, who, who knows? You, you just don't know the whole story, do you? Bands are so complex. Sometimes there's disease, sometimes there's breakups, sometimes there's... In like infighting, who knows? You know, it's all it's, in our case. A lot of the time, it's legal. You know, you can't release this because of that cunt at such and such records owns the rights, and they they can't be bothered promoting it in America, so it doesn't get to come out. And that kind of shit. So who knows? But there's always a reason. <laughs> Bunch of cunts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Susie and I had a song. We didn't know what to call it, and the guy Doug looking after us said, "Call it sad cunt." <laughs> I hope you did. <laughs> it's about so we did and got T-shirts printed of this guy in a in a pair of jockey Y front standing there. You know, he's only like a little line drawing on on pink shirts or blue shirts. So good. And then we came to the states and and we couldn't give this single away. It was like we, it was a freebie. I think. I think we oh. actually it was actually the first thing we released. I tried to, and we'd done this like one-off thing at the garage in North London, the tiny little place. And we threw this single out, passed it out, and they were all on the floor at the end of the night because nobody really knew what they were, oh. you know, 45. Do you still have those 45s? I think they're around somewhere. And <gasps> I, I may be um, em- embellishing it somewhat. But there's T-shirts, definitely. And, but when we wore them in the States, it was like, I want the, one of those T-shirts. Okay. Susie, Susie, Doug, if you're listening, um, we have to open that dialogue sooner or later. <laughs> and I can't think of anybody better than Shirley Manson asking for a sad cunt t-shirt. <laughs> I need a sad cunt t-shirt. Well, she needs it soon because we need it for the tour. <laughs> yes. For me, a lot of time with The Cure, it's like even now, today, there's still two people that I grew up with in, in that band, you know? So so that's the hard part, because for a long time, that was my family, you know? Mm-hmm. And it isn't anymore, you know? Except always, always your family, no? Even if you're not speaking to one another, it's sort of like, this is 
You can't get out. It's like the mafia. You can't get out. Yeah, always, always, but it's like dangerous. Yeah. I thought that today I was thinking about it because doing this podcast is, and I'm also, you know, doing the memoir thing. We all seem to be kind of putting our experiences together. And, and, and it's strange I find myself able to talk about things that I wasn't able to even think about, um, you know, wow. to do with Susie, to do with the band. Um, and to this morning or at some point in, in today, I thought, well, do you still love them? You know, and the, it, it, there was no pause. It was, of course, you know, of course I love them. I, I, I care for them um, wherever they are. And I don't go looking or trying to find out. I, I, it's not the same, though. It's, 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 it's a kind of my, I suppose, for the first time in my life, I've, I've actually started to understand what love might be and how many different forms it may take what I thought was our relationship and the love was actually became unhealthy. It wasn't good for us. I, I, but there's no way I understood that. And so the split wasn't very um, um, nice, you know. But, it, it, but it, it was necessary, I think. I'm so sorry. That must be really hard. I mean, love changes as well, doesn't it? For, I think for maybe four years, I, I just was reeling, you know. But right. I'd met somebody so soon after who's now my wife who, who is now the mother of my two children and and none of this would have happened and it's not saying that what was happening was wrong but it's it's that's one of those moments in life where you dare to do something not because you're brave or courageous just um just to think that this is there's something not right here and and it's not to do with us it's to not to do with anyone in particular it's just what, how, what do you do? You know, what do you do with this? Um, and that was that was just not easy. I wasn't pleasant, and and maybe the fallout is still there. It's such a huge part of your identity. That's the other thing about being in a band, right? Right, absolutely. How the world interfaces with you. The the, the thing that you were talking about to get you on stage, the thing you create with from yourself, using all of the reference points you have. That's all you got. And what you write about, and 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 and, and summon it all up to get the, the the power you mentioned, you know, to get up there and and be somebody up there and and be convincing to yourself as well as to the crowd. It's it, when then you say, okay, well, that's not there anymore. And you're like, wow. Yeah. People don't realise that about bands and things and how how you make something. You know, it becomes you know it's closer than being married a lot of the time. Well, for budget, it was being married, but um, you know, it's like I thought that was my guarantee of staying in the band. You know? Right? Yeah. Because everybody else, everybody else is getting fired. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, you go. It's a good, good, good motive. Yeah, I know. It, it's like they become your family, and like I say to people, you know, it'll always be a part of me. The Cure, for sure, is always a part of me. It's just you know. I, I don't know. I, I prefer Budgie's company nowadays, actually. I suppose that's what it is. You used to call The Cure the mental family. Robert used to call everything the mental family. Yeah, yeah. And usually it's the pot calling the kettle black, right? <laughs> yeah. there, there you go. Well, there you have it. Yeah, bands are really complicated. I don't think unless you've been in one, you'll never understand how they work. Right. And you'll never understand how you can have this fierce love of your band and also this fierce frustration that you know, exists just because human beings are not meant to be tethered together. You know what I mean? 
like as a band, you're tethered together in the ways that you aren't in your marriage. You know, if you have a healthy marriage, you're free to to do as you please in many ways. Unfortunately, in a band, your roles are decreed and then are very rarely are you able to bounce out of that role. You're stuck together like glue. And I think that creates an enormous like strain on relationships and on the individuals. And people just don't understand that, you know. That's that's a very succinct way of, of putting it. That's that's exactly what it is. It's totally unnatural. Yeah. You, you set a role. It's kind of like, and that's the role that you end up playing, and you're not allowed really to step out of it because if you if you change, it affects the chemistry of what's been successful in the band, especially if you had a really big first second album, you know, first and second album. So if you're a hard drinking, hard drugging band, that's going to be your demise probably you know yeah how long usually the drummer will go first or the bass player you know, whatever. <laughs> i didn't want to see in our, in our case in our case and it wasn't for any other reasons but we, we of course we had lots of guitarists and it was crazy amazing guitarists. You know, always a good guitarist but we had stomach through always called john i oh, know that's what i was gonna say they're all called john so weird the jobs <laughs> strangely shelly it's like i think that helped the banshees to sustain through the kind of the ups and downs because there was always somebody new almost every album yeah which um, helps the dynamic people behave better as well when there's a new person around you know you have to accommodate them you have to show them in and it, and then it's up to them how 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 long they last or how quickly they yeah how they integrate uh, and very difficult yeah it's it's difficult you did, of course you did it as well you had to like come from one place and find out what how, what fitted the chemistry yeah and then you know to to be like i was sort of like plucked from obscurity and pulled into the band we weren't like you guys we weren't like friends you know we didn't grow up together we didn't gravitate towards each other naturally i was found very unnaturally on the mtv they invited me into the band and Butch was a very very successful producer arguably one of the most famous and successful at that time in america in the world, actually. And I was all immediately, you know, at a disadvantage from the way the world perceived us, right? And then as years and years have progressed, obviously I, my confidence has grown, my songwriting has changed and so on and so forth. And that puts a pressure on a group dynamic. Yeah. And I am very grateful and very lucky that I'm with three people who have really accommodated me as I have kind of shifted. I mean, they've shifted too, but I would say that because I'm at the front of the band, like the focus is on my change a lot, you know, in ways that perhaps they can do more privately. But either way, where everyone's shifting and changing, but I've been very lucky that I've given was given some room to do that. And I think it's very hard when you find yourself in a band that will not adapt to you. It's impossible, actually, to I think to survive that. That's that's big of them. Yeah, it's big of them. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's the thing as well, like you were saying, though, you know, it started when they're, they're all a bit older. So, you know, that maybe that's the thing, you know, some experience that you don't need to be, uh, you know, you need, you need to let people, people grow because if you don't, everything shuts down, you know, and that, that was really my experience, you know, in the end, people weren't really growing and people were, like you said, they're stuck in a particular role circumscribed by you know whatever 
and it's not me and it's not the other people and it doesn't really fit and it just becomes uncomfortable in the end and you're with each other 24 7 for you know months on end so what 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 if you don't mind me asking like what sort of propelled you into making a decision was was there a a cataclysmic moment or were you just like i can't breathe i need i need to leave no there was a lot of cataclysmic moments i think really i mean you know there was there was fisticuffs everything um yeah no it i was like i ended up being like the scapegoat i feel for a lot of things and the scapegoat if you if you follow the sort of you know the trajectory they drove it out into the desert and then found out well actually everything is kind of messed up anyway you know it's not just one person or one thing um but i felt lucky that i escaped because i was very sick at the time you know and i needed to get well yeah and i got well and i've been well ever since and uh, that's amazing that's been the best part of my life you know again you know you're in your prime darling <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 no because a lot of people like a, a good friend john don't get past it you know mr mcgeek and stuff and he was a lovely man i like i love john he was a lovely man but it was my you know, sometimes just things get you and that's it. And that's, I used to wonder when I was younger, you know, I used to sleep under this big poster of Jimi Hendrix, right? And this is how me and Robert started because we both liked Hendrix, right? So when we were like 11, we'd talk to each other about that. But I used to wonder why people died in bands. You know, I would say, well, why do they die? They're all like 27 and they die. And, and you know, you have to do it to understand why that happens. And luckily, both both me and Budgie escaped that um, that particular thing so feel very grateful for that and like we look at this now this whole thing like you know with the the podcast with the record with the writing you know this is like our, this is like gravy like they say this is like our third act and we're we're so we're happy it's fantastic You've just been working. You've been working on the pasta as well, though, haven't you? Pulling everything back together, like I hear, of course, there's the tour coming up. But Anthology was put together. How long did that take? Yeah, it didn't really take that long. I mean, you know what it's like nowadays because everything's digital. It takes like, well, we'll put that song or that song and that song on and boom, Bob, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, but it, yeah. <laughs> but it felt it felt significant to us, you know, we couldn't believe our luck. We still can't believe our luck that we get to make music for a living, get to talk to people like you of a, of a morning, like how, you know, this is my life. Like how amazing is this? And I'm 50 soon to be 57 years old for a woman in the music industry to have this long a career is kind of unusual in alternative rock. Right. And I just cannot believe I was one of the survivors. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't believe it. You kept moving. You kept moving. I, I, I can now, having talked to you now, I can believe it because I see what <laughs> right. no, seriously, I mean that in a nice way. Okay, good. Well, I'm a student of you both. I mean, The Cure was a massive influence on our band. Massive influence. It's name-checked all the time. And so, yeah, both of you like just have had a profound influence on all of us. And we had amazing heroes to watch, you know, even now to this day, you know, hearing that Susie's coming back and playing some shows this year, it's like so powerful. It's like for a woman of my age to see a woman of her age still make right. Right. waves in the music industry. It's so exciting. Yeah. And it's really un- rare and 
I don't know. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you the question, and you can tell us. You know, to shut up if it's none of our business. But how are you feeling physically? Fuck off, lol. No, okay. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. You know, I'm joking. You know, Budgie's going to put that on the loop now, don't you? You know, he's going to put it on the loop. I'm just being cheeky. Yeah. No, I mean, I've had the most humbling experience of my entire life, I would say, over the last month. Um, I got a hip replacement. I fell off stage at a K-Rock Weenie Fest. Um, <laughs> Can I just stop you there? Shirley, I saw there was the clip and I, and I looked and I just oh thought, Oh, my God. That, how you managed... I'm sure you didn't know you'd, what, what had happened and you just went on autopilot. No, I knew what was happening as it was happening. I went into slow motion and I was like, I'm going to fucking fall off the front of this fucking stage. I fucking can't believe. Oh my God, here I go. Yep, tumbling forward. And then all of a sudden I've landed on my feet, thank God. But un, sort of beknownst to me at the time, I really jacked my right hip on the barrier. I landed on the barrier basically and jacked it. <laughs> And then for six years, I've had some problems. And then the last, I was on tour with Alanis Morissette two years ago and I couldn't walk on days off. I was like, what the hell's going on? And then eventually my doctor was like, yeah, you need a hip replacement. So I had that a month ago and it was so humbling. Like I've never had any physical problems my whole life, like nothing. I've never broken a leg or a finger or anything. And then all of a sudden I found myself using a bedpan, pissing in a bedpan, you know, and having some nurse come and clean me up. I was like, this cannot be happening to me. This cannot be happening. It was happening to me. And then I couldn't walk for two whole weeks. And then I was with a walker, like shuffling around Beverly Hills outside my doctor's office, because I do not live in Beverly Hills, I hasten to add. And it was just like, I really had to, like, it was such a great ego check of like, yeah, you are just you. And you're going to die and you better enjoy your life that you've got left now. You know, just really seize the day. It was really both a cool experience and an awful one. But here I am with my amazing bionic hip, which looks so beautiful on the x-ray. And I'm grateful to be alive. There you go. So there you go. It's a triumphant story in the end. <laughs> Thank you for asking, Law. And now you're going to, when, when you get on tour, you're going to bleep every security uh, check-in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. talking about ailments it's like I damaged my hip a little bit a little while ago and that's what I ended up doing because I was always on the, the bike you know I was always cycling and stuff and and that ruined my hip so I, I've got to I've got to go on the elliptical so we're all on the ellipticals now but if you ever need a recommend for a good surgeon hit me up because my guy's really great absolutely it, it's coming I know it's I know it's coming because it's like that's I went to the eye doctor yesterday and he's like yeah you need to take these vitamins from now on can I tell you um that, that, that I had in um in the, the first year of lockdown um and so I finally went for that checkup you're supposed to go to but you keep putting it off because you get to a certain age when you're a bloke you mean the one with the camera when they're looking up your bum when the little camera goes up the um up your bum hole up your bum yeah colonoscopies and things yes up your bum hole up your bum <laughs> so my surgeon says okay i do these every day and his name's ringo oh god 
Of course it is. Uh, and, and of course, I'm in Berlin, and of course, all the doctors and surgeons all speak really good English. And so, um, and where are you from? I say Liverpool. They go, oh, Liverpool, the Beatles. And they don't want to talk about me and my ailments. They just want to talk about the Beatles and the Cavern Club and, and the music there. And I say, it was a while ago, you know. Well, I had a colonoscopy years ago. And when I was going, you know, like they give you the tranquilizer drugs. So you're kind of half out of it before they actually do the whole thing. And then the lady was snapping on her rubber gloves. And as she snapped on her rubber gloves, she went, I'm a very big fan. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Oh. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. That's the last thing you want to hear. Well, you know, you can give me your hip surgeon. I can give you the best place in the whole of L.A., for the endoscopy and colonoscopy because I went about a month ago and it was like, it, it was the best experience I've ever had in, in a medical setting ever. It was, <laughs> it, it was like going to heaven. It was like going to heaven. Wow. Mine was too, until they had to go in and do the operation where they really go into the operate. I thought I'd been in the operating theater until they took me into the one where it's freezing, you know, and everybody's wrapped up and you're going, what's going on? And they put you on this bed of kind of molecules which form the shape of your body so that it supports you. From wow. This Maybe this is German hospi hospitality, is that what we call it? <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then they, um, they, touch, they touch your fingers with an electrode. Only I'm supposed to be under by this point, and I go ah. <laughs> he goes, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. Oh my god. But apparently, it's like you're supposed to reflex. It's just to make sure that if something is hurting you or whatever, that you can actually oh my god re respond. But uh, it's freezing, yeah. And the next thing you wake up, and it's all been, it's all over. But I would not have had those things done had I been doing what I was doing, which was touring every year. I, I would have kept putting it off and putting it off. And people have gone. People who had no symptoms. And oh, don't, like, yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's just just the kind of, almost like the luck of the draw, really, you know. And well, I want to know why Lol's experience was so heavenly, like. What did what they give you, Lol? What did they give you? Well, they gave me the normal stuff like they gave Michael Jackson. You know, you just go like that and then you wake up and it's all over. It's all over. It wasn't to do with the shaving or anything like that? No, there was no shaving involved. Or the anal probing? No, there was, there was, there was one from one end, one from the other end, but it was just... Tickles? Did it tickle? You know, I, that's the thing. <laughs> I didn't feel a goddamn thing uh... because... You know, I went into the place at first. It didn't look like it was the, the doctor's anything. It was like a art gallery, you know, and they were all very quiet and nice. I got nice warm blankets and stuff. And then you know, it was like seven Vestal Virgins were looking after me. It was great. Oh. It was it was really wonderful. And they were, the doctor, she had such a nice bedside manner, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Well, I never thought we'd be on here talking about colonoscopies, but there you have it. We had to get there eventually. Yeah, well, you have to. You have to. <laughs> I, I bring every conversation around to it recently because... It... And on that note... <laughs> well, it's been lovely having you today. <laughs> oh, I, it was lovely to be had by oh, two greats. Oh, my goodness. So thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, Shirley. As I said, so much love to you both for your beautiful music and amazing fierceness and... Yeah, thanks for changing my life, yeah? Thanks for being here, Shelley. All right, lots of love, guys.
Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.